Welcome to episode 151, When We Are Not Okay, Understanding and Managing Compassion Fatigue, featuring Dr. Dane Cloner, licensed marriage and family therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Dane Cloner. His jam, oddly enough, is burnout and compassion fatigue and understanding how self as therapist affects the therapeutic relationship and therapeutic outcomes and what we do to deal because we're human beings too. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Cloner. Why don't you take a moment to tell our listeners about yourself and how you came to do this particular work? Okay, great. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I started, I was working with the indigent population out of school. I was an intern and um, with the adult homeless population. And I was working there in the clinic for over six years. And I started getting, um, well, I started feeling compassion fatigue and burnout. And as most anybody would with a clinic. Um, and then I started, I thought to myself, well, I've been doing this a long time. So let's, let's delve in deeper and get a doctorate. So I went and got a doctorate. And when I was doing research, I really fell in love with the idea of what it means to have compassion fatigue because I'm the worst kind of patient uh, myself and realized that I was falling into the same traps as everybody else where I was taking care of others and not necessarily myself. Um, and then when I was actually doing the doctoral research, I found out that I had about 80% of the symptoms that I was researching and um, shortly thereafter decided to leave um, because I needed to. Uh, finished up my dissertation and then started doing um, my own private practice uh, so that I could I think the idea was to take better control of my needs and be in more control. So that was, yeah. So that's what I did. Um, you know, it's been, it's been a long journey and I, I realized that I still have a lot to learn. Well, thank you for joining us to discuss a topic that I think is very sensitive for most, if not all of us. Um, as we record this, we're in April of 2022. We've all been through now over two years of pandemic. We're in the midst of the Russian and yeah. Ukraine war, unbelievable mass shootings, um, racial unrest. It's it's a lot right now. It's a lot. And so we're feeling it as human beings, not to mention whatever is going on in our in our little lives. Um, not just in the news. So thank you for, for joining us for a topic yeah, that is so heavy and important. So burnout is, I think, a really complex thing in therapy land, if you will, like for therapists, because I think we're probably not very good at assessing what that is. And we're also maybe not even familiar with, as you said, compassion fatigue. Can you start, Dane, by explaining the difference between burnout and compassion fatigue, and then kind of breaking down what those concepts are just as a foundation for this conversation today? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, Compassion fatigue itself, it's differentiated from burnout, where compassion fatigue really is a, a response to the people who suffer from trauma, and burnout is a response to work situations. So a lot of times you're going to hear words like uh, secondary traumatic stress, vicarious trauma or vicarious traumatization, uh, and you'll hear compassion fatigue and burnout, and you'll hear them all rolled into one 
they're subtly different. Mm-hmm. Um, one leads us to depressive symptoms. The other one leads us to uh, feelings of hopelessness. Uh, you know, burnout itself really is related to the workplace, where it's a lack of resources, uh, where the work is unsustainable, where there's competition, and maybe not enough of us to go around for the work that's offered. And you'll find this a lot in clinics, which unfortunately is the case. I mean, it's the nature of the beast, really. Um, you know, we always say, oh, well, something's got to change, but it's, it's a difficult thing to implement and change because the marriage between getting funding and justifying the funding versus caring for the people that actually need the care um, don't always gel well together. Um, but as far as compassion fatigue is concerned, <clears throat> there's not a lot of, well, at least 10 years, up to 10 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of research on it. Charles Figley did seminal research on it in the late 80s, uh, and he really coined the term uh, compassion fatigue in 95 to identify, uh, to define it as a reduced capacity or interest in being empathic, or as he says, bearing the suffering of clients, and it's the natural consequence of behaviors and emotions resulting from knowing a traumatizing event experienced by another person. And so the way I, the best way I can explain that is that as we sit in the room with somebody who's smoking a cigarette, they may be getting all of the carcinogens, but it was found later on that even secondhand smoke can impact somebody the very same way. So we take on those carcinogens. And when we take on the pain of other people, whether you're a therapist, a, a priest, or anybody in a helping profession, you're taking on that pain to a relative degree. Your body absorbs it, your mind absorbs it, your emotions absorb it, your spirituality uh, absorbs all of that pain. And we have to know how to better accommodate mm-hmm. and even compartmentalize that pain to a degree so that we're not as affected by it and we can be more effective in our work. So you're saying compassion fatigue is directly related to the hearing of trauma, the hearing of traumatic stories versus burnout, as you said, being from the workplace. Correct. As you pointed out, we so often see those as happening together. But I want to point out that distinction because if if you're viewing those as separate entities, you could have compassion fatigue while having no burnout. You can. Uh, and you can, I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, you could have burnout without compassion fatigue, but because they're so closely related, they're paralleled so closely uh, that you can, it's it's not a wonder to me, or, and I don't even get upset knowing that I know the research. I don't even, uh, you know, get upset with people who are frustrated by the idea that the intermix uh those two terms. Yeah. Uh, You know, compassion fatigue is our fatigue, our emotional distress, our apathy, and it results from the constant demands of caring for others. A lot of times there's a state of tension or preoccupation with the individual, or it's based in cumulative trauma. So sometimes we get triggered in session unknowingly. Uh, So we experience or we, well, we re-experience traumatic events. Um, Sometimes there's a persistent arousal within us, in our bodies that we are not aware of. Uh, and because we're always so used to pushing it down for other people that it, it becomes second nature to us. And at least we think we're doing the right thing by pushing right. it down rather than expressing it. Maybe even in that moment by saying, you know, I'm feeling what you're feeling. Um, sometimes bringing that awareness can reduce some of the, the effects of compassion fatigue, uh, having education educational forums like this or workshops or, you know, things like that can really help people be more aware. 
So, you know, sometimes when we experience compassion fatigue, there is a detachment and that leads to a lack of empathy. Whereas if you have secondary traumatic stress, you feel the emotions of things, but it leads to an increased vulnerability in self if we're not caring for ourselves more often or with more consistency. And then with vicarious trauma, the difference is, is that we share one's intrusive imagery and that leads to a loss of hope. And burnout itself is dealing with a sense of depleted resources, which can lead to frustration, depression, increased anxiety. Um, and of course, you know, it's difficult to manage those things when you feel like the answer is managing other people's worry or concern or problems instead of your own. This is such an important conversation. And I'm even realizing how hard it is for me to have this conversation. Mm. And I can only imagine how it is for our listeners. Having been through the storm of the pandemic, like everybody, we're all in different boats. Um, so what anybody's experience has been of struggling with isolation, if you're without much family or friend support, um, or if you're yeah. not partnered off st or struggling with being a single parent with multiple children, like the idea for so many people has the idea of caring and compassion fatigue. Even for me, it's felt like this empty bucket just, just within my family, let alone with anything going on with clients. And, and I think that we therapists probably have a lot of defensiveness around this idea because yeah. it's like, well, that's that thing that happens to that person. That's not something that happens to me um, because, yeah. because I get many petties and because I go on uh, 45 minute walks twice a week. You know, I, I can see how any of us, myself included, come up with these ideas of like, that's anybody but me, because we in our culture really love to reinforce the concept of strength. Yes, <laughs> and if yeah. we take time off, it's because we're being weak, um, or we're self-centered. And so we have so much messaging, like I, I'm sure you've seen it. We both worked in the kind of therapy yeah. mill environments of public mental health treatment. And I swear you practically get a gold star. If you say I worked all weekend, I'm not sleeping well, I didn't have time for lunch today, yes. then it's like, then you're doing it right. Welcome to America. <laughs> right, right. I think it, I like to believe that that is slowly eroding. I, I want to believe that. The, the truth is, is it's not. You still, you're right. You get a gold star because uh, if if you're working overtime and work yourself raw to the bone, and you know, then sometimes you know, for some reason, you get a, a trophy, yeah, or a medal. And I think those days, at least my hope is that, and with some companies, some cultures of different companies, is the idea that they're really embracing self care. They're embracing the idea that 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 a healthy person is more beneficial to them and that taking one day off is better than for them to have to take three days off because they literally cannot work. It's a concept that health com health insurance companies have known for a long time. Um, it's a concept where having a healthier patient, even if it means more money for them upfront or that they take more of a loss because there's less productivity to a degree, means that they're saving on the back end because right. a person who takes three days off of work because they want to don't have to take off a week and a half because they got sick or one or were physically unable to. 
the ever important uh, PEI prevention and early intervention yes. world. Um, so why don't we talk about what compassion fatigue does to therapy? How does it affect clients? And then I want to talk about kind of the different stages of compassion fatigue and what we do when we're just feeling it versus like deeply mired in it. <laughs> so this sure. is, this, I, I'm sitting here like I, I joked with Dane before I need to get my bowl of popcorn and just sit here and eat <laughs> while he's talking and just pay attention right. and listen up because it has been so much for the last few years. And, and I hope for the folks listening to this uh, that you see you're not alone in um, burnout and or compassion fatigue. Absolutely. It's, it's been a heavy time. <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting because I was just reading an article um, last week um, uh, talking about the difference between a quarantine and isolation mm. um, and how a quarantine – isolation is the physical isolation, right? Quarantine is just – it's considered an un, unpleasant experience for those who undergo it. And it, it's separation from loved ones, the loss of freedom or the idea of freedom. Uh, uncertainty over disease status, uncertainty over a lot of things, uh, sometimes boredom. And on occasion, this can create traumatic effects. So whether that's part of our own anxiety or our perception of what's going to happen, we all know that with anxiety, we can build it up pretty, pretty well in our minds, uh, the awfulness. And so we get into our minds that something's not going to end. And if we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, it becomes a scary place. Mm that fear becomes an underlying platform from which we make decisions, from which we utilize our executive functioning. So when you ask me something like, when you ask me something like, how does it affect therapy? One of the first things that I think about is that the compassion fatigue is related to our own unresolved personal trauma and loss. It can affect how I take in information, how I extrapolate it, how I put it back onto the client, how I respond to it, whether it's, I mean, up to 90% of our communication is nonverbal. So how am I really responding? Am I responding unconsciously in a way that's unhealthy or not responsive to the client in a more positive or effective way? Um, thinking about how a lack of empathy can be um, something so, so subtle, but not catching what a client is saying because I'm in my own world thinking about my own issues, that's not an uncommon thing. Um, high frequency of exposure to, to traumatic, traumatic material um, is, is it's exhausting in and of itself. And if we're not caring for ourselves, then we're pouring from an empty cup, which we can't do. And we're caring for arguably the most vulnerable in society. Um, and so sometimes what happens with compassion fatigue is that we may not be connecting on the same level. We may not be understanding some of the social cues or references or social references, uh, even some of the nuances like using humor um, or utilizing the ideas of gratitude and forgiveness. The thing about compassion fatigue is that just like any trauma, it's the things that help contribute to our own lack of security or safety. And if we're not feeling safe and secure within ourselves, how can we expect to model that or help others gain perspective on that if we're not doing so, if we're not caring for ourselves? As you talk about this, you talk about the gravity and the weight of 
hearing these stories, being sometimes part of these stories with our clients and just the nature of our work. You can't be a therapist without discussing trauma. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. Why do we do it? What's the benefit when we're why do we thinking, do what? why do Therapy? we, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> why, why do we, what is the, um, I guess, I don't know if it's an altruistic or selfish offset. Hmm. I, I mean, an argument can be made for both, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting because, and what I'm finding, and we find this, again, the parallel to business too. Back in the day, right? It was always, the CEO was on the 50th floor, you know, or the highest floor. It was, they were untouchable to a degree. Whereas now, and I'm relating it to business because I'm, I'm seeing some of that change, even as I talk to clients, um, that the idea now uh, about being more comfortable is accessibility and vulnerability. I, I'm finding that, you know, it's no longer this, I mean, well, I've, I've known this for a long time, but this is how I operate. But it's no longer the days of psychoanalysis to a degree where it, and I, I mean that in a stereotypical sense where a person's laying on a couch and you're standing behind, sitting behind them and then drawing notes and making analysis. Um, it's, it's about engaging. It's, it's about the connection and Anna Freud and, and Melanie Klein. I mean, back, back in the twenties and thirties were saying it's, it, people are, are yearning for belonging and it's about the connection. And if I can connect with my client, and sometimes that doesn't mean that we share the same love of, you know, rom-coms. It means that we share a connection where we can both be human and acknowledge the difficulty in what it just means to exist, let alone live. So for me, you know, and, and Charles Figley said this as well. He said, compassion fatigue is a state experienced by those helping people or animals in distress. It's an extreme state of tension and preoccupation with the suffering of those being helped to the degree that it can create a secondary traumatic stress for the helper. Again, when you're taking on the pain of other people, it, yeah, you have to filter it through your own experience to a large degree because that's really in, in making a connection. That's what helps somebody move through it, knowing that part of their community has been through something before. A lot of times when I'm teaching classes, I just, I just did this on class on Tuesday. I had them answer questions about themselves and then get into groups and share their experience of the questions, like what they learned about themselves or what was something they overcame. Part of what offers many of them relief or reduced anxiety is the idea that they knew that they weren't alone. We often forget that we are not alone mm. as caregivers. And so we want to take on the pain almost... I don't want to say it like this, but for lack of a better word, there's a martyrdom that kind of goes with that. Again, kind of like the overtime. Um, you know, I'm working a ton, I'm, you know, with nothing to really show for it. it is, my, is my taking that client on at 8 p.m. because that's the only time they can meet, is that healthy for me? Is that effective for our relationship? One of the greatest things about moving on from compassion fatigue is setting boundaries. Something I... It's something that took me a long time to learn, um, but I've started to become better at it with myself, with others, asserting asserting my 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 boundaries well enough where I was protecting myself, but I wasn't doing it for me as a selfish thing. I learned that I needed to that selfishness was different from doing for self, and that when I'm doing that, when I'm protecting me, I'm also protecting the relationship. There's a lot here, um, and and it goes into 
a deeper conversation too about each of our own individual beliefs about what therapy is, about what helping is. And mm-hmm. I know just to stereotype the perspective from a social worker versus a clinical counselor versus mm-hmm. a, a psychologist about what is helping. Those are very different. And so there's sure. also these different cultures within um, systems within different factions of the mental health world. You talked about self-care and, and I think we've gotten really catchphrasy about self-care. Like we just, we need to tune into Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow and Oprah and have a conversation <laughs> about self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sure. And, and as we joke about it also like is not something to be taken lightly because it's so quickly the thing... <laughs> Self-care, I think, especially in the last few years, but self-care to me is kind of like how a lot of organizations view like auditing departments. Like, well, if it's not making us money, um, then we'll just get rid of it, you know, or, or HR. Like, it's sure. like, we sure. can do without this. Um, right. Um, can you dispel that myth that we can do without this? We don't, you know, self-care is this luxury. Can you speak to that? Okay. I, I'm going to answer that in in a couple different ways. We have the stress response, right? And the thing that that separates normal existential stress from chronic stress or toxic stress is the idea that in some way we're in an environment that is negative, but also not doing something about it. Now, there are some people who can't, but that's, I mean, we help those people within with regard to that trauma, but helping us recognize the environment that we're in that may be unhealthy is also an environment that we help create by not caring for ourselves or setting boundaries is really an important thing to consider. I understand that there are some people who can't get out of their situation. Like I would never say to a a domestic violence victim, you know, why didn't you get out sooner? Because of course, I'm not shaming them. I'm not blaming, but I want to know what contributed to their staying so that I can help them understand for themselves how they can maneuver themselves through that situation better. Some people, it takes many years to get out of such a relationship, right? I don't want to get too far off track, but the idea is, is that, I'll put it this way. I have a favorite quote. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert said, embrace the glorious mess that you are. It's the idea that we need to accept ourselves for who we are, that we're unique and we're going to make mistakes. For me, compassion fatigue and and trauma are, are very closely intertwined, obviously. Trauma takes away, it takes away our sense of safety and security. It diminishes it, right? Compassion fatigue does the same thing. It diminishes our sense of safety and security because we don't feel like we have control because we're always tired or we're cynical. And in my research, what I found was the things that help restore a person's sense of safety and security are four things. It's mindfulness, it's humor, forgiveness, and gratitude. These are really important concepts and probably something that I incorporate in just, I mean, in some fashion in just about every session. I want to know what that person's grateful for. Why? Because it increases the sense of, uh, from, from a physical sense, endorphins, uh, and serotonin. I also want people to help them forgive some of the things, whether it includes themselves, family member. You're not condoning what somebody did. You're helping let go of the pain associated with that continues to anchor us into, um, I believe, uh, anchors us into despair or hurt, right? Use of humor is always good. Again, increasing endorphins, uh, you know, using it when it's clinically appropriate, of course. 
um, but helping people acknowledge from a different perspective that grief and loss can be seen differently, that we can learn to remember the good things. And I ask people, what's your favorite story about this person or this loss? Or how did you experience this loss? What was something that you miss from this relationship? Because I want to help people understand the balance. Because again, self-care is about balance. All, not all loss is about loss. Sometimes it's just about the lack of celebration, if that makes sense. Um, and then, of course, the other one, uh, gratitude. There is, in some of my research, there was a list of 25 things that people could do. And each one was empirically researched um, with different articles to show that it did increase endorphins uh, and or uh, serotonin. And it was everything from taking a hike uh, to getting your nails done, right? But it was also about finding humor. Sometimes it was about physical touch or affection or cuddling. Sometimes it was just smiling randomly. Um, sometimes it was getting into a good book, gardening. Any of the things that help kind of slow us down or remind us that we don't have to be on the go all the time is really important. So I hope I answered that question, but... You did. Uh, you absolutely okay. did. Because I think you just went deeper underneath this idea that self-care um, has to involve a lot of time or a lot of money. And that's not necessarily a reason, you know, neither of those are resources at any sure. given moment that we may necessarily have. Um, and we may not have them for a very long time. So this idea that maybe we can sprinkle in self-care, even if we can't spare an hour and 15 minutes to get that mani-pedi, or we can't spare the funds, or we don't have the childcare, or whatever it is. But sure. I appreciate what you just said, where it was like, it doesn't have to be the, the uh, activity, quote-unquote, in the glossy pages yeah. of a magazine to offset yes. the experience of compassion fatigue. It, it doesn't have to be the... It doesn't have to be... How do I put it? Um, and I forget the term, but the um, the glorified nature of what people do on Facebook or Instagram or any of the social media posts where you're seeing a litany of things where people are doing like fun, amazing things, but you see them in succession. Not not one person is going to Jamaica and then, you know, going to the Gold Coast in Australia or paragliding. You know, it, they're not all, it's different people too, but we get into our minds that, we're missing out. And sometimes we don't have the funds or we get low on ourselves. And sometimes it's about doing simple things. It's about sitting in silence for 60 seconds. Um, there's been research done where they've done mindfulness. And this was in, I think it was in Washington, and they've done it in California as well, where they've taken um, elementary age kids, school age kids, and they've done one minute of meditation five times a day. And they have... Um, they did this when they get into the classroom, they do it once before recess, once after recess, once later in the afternoon, and one, one time before they go home. Parents reported that uh, their children were calmer when they got home, uh, test scores improved, detentions went down by 98%, fighting went down by 98%, um, and 86 or 87% of the teachers said that they would offer that in their curriculum again after the research was done because it was so effective. The other, the other thing that I, I go on is this idea that there was more research done with positive parenting program. It's called triple P and it started in Australia and it's in, I think over 30 countries now. But the idea was that they found in their research that shutting off your phone and sitting with a child for 10 minutes 
without electronics and just engaging with them for 10 minutes was more effective in terms of the positivity it, it placed mm -hmm. on the relationship than it was just sitting for two hours in a room watching television with them. So you, it, it can happen. We have to make it a point to do that. It's not easy. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm having this interview, like I know what I'm doing, but I admit that I don't do it as well as I, you know, as I preach it either because life does happen. But it's a matter of finding something, not just weekly, but daily that you can do, even if it's for two minutes. So I have forced my, like the Calm app I love. Uh, it's been very effective, the Headspace app. Um, a lot of times I'll just use Tibetan singing bowls from YouTube and do that for one minute and breathe every time I hear a chime. You know, it's about just kind of getting back to this essence of self and setting boundaries and having peer supervision to talk about things that are difficult so that you can share in the pain. So, uh, I also equate it to this idea of having a tension headache. You know, you got one piece of, of the headache in one part of your head. They say to press on other parts of your head to kind of increase the surface area of that pressure so you don't feel it as much in one place. And I've done that and it works. <laughs> so I often feel like emotionally that works as well. If we're displacing our we're just displacing our trauma and our pain by communicating about it. I always say that that's a really good thing. Um, you know, I, I tell people, I tell my clients two things. Uh, one is if you fall on your face, at least you're moving forward. Um, meaning it's okay to make mistakes it, because we're going to learn from them. At least that's the hope. The other thing that I tell them is that communicating your pain can be a gift that you give to others. I think that's one of the things that helped me understand compassion fatigue and trauma better was knowing that if I gave it voice, it had less power over me. It's very much a, it's very much in line with a Brene Brown kind of the power of vulnerability. Um, but I subscribe to that and it's, it's worked for me and my clients for the most part. What about when we're already in it? Yeah. I was going to say past the point of no return, but that's not accurate because we are capable of returning. <laughs> so when we are mired in it, how do we get out of it? Um, and I know for myself, and from conversations with colleagues, sometimes there are things that happen in life that are just completely out of our control. And for, you know, for me, my listeners know, my son has major illnesses that can sometimes completely sideline the best laid intentions for quote unquote self-care sure, and sure. also the demands of work and the rest of what it means to be an adult. Um, so how quickly any of us can kind of be propelled into a place of feeling like our cup is empty when we're there, what do we do? I think, and I experienced this with, with my clients. I, I have a client right now who uh, has a special needs daughter and has done more by five o'clock, five thirty in the morning than most people yeah. have done in four days. Um, and many, I'm sure many listeners can can um, uh, acknowledge that. Um, the best thing to do is to, I think, maintain open lines of communication. Sometimes it's having the knowledge and awareness. Sometimes it's difficult to tell our partner, "Hey, I can't do this for my child because I'm I'm worn out because we're worried about the stigma." or we're worried about how it sounds or how it might feel later on. I want to encourage people to set boundaries. And I know as I say that, people are going to say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, because, you know, where's your kid? Where's the, I don't think it's going to happen every single day. That's not what I'm saying. Um, it's understanding that some things are out of our control. 
this is where the forgiveness aspect comes in, that we get to forgive ourselves for not being available 24-7 because sometimes we need to recharge. By saying to our husband or our wife or our partner or whomever or family member, significant other, that, hey, I need you to take Tuesday on like it was like I wasn't here, like I wasn't available because they're going to need you to do the same. But it's that kind of awareness and the and further communication that can really open up the way in which you see the relationship, how you take on the pain of, of not wanting to forgive yourself to a degree when those things happen. And again, I understand that I say this and slightly admittedly within a bubble, right? Because I, I don't have a special needs child. And one time I said something like this to a client who was having a difficult time in her marriage. And she said, and I gave her a quote, you know, just like we do. And she's like, that's, that's a great quote, but it doesn't help me fold the laundry. Mm. And there was something about that where I was like, wow. And it made me, it, it, I was, it was a gut check. And I thanked her in the moment. I said, um, yeah, I think we're done for today. I, you know, it, it was, it was just a moment where I was like, I really needed to ingest that and own it. Um, and she was right. It's a great quote, but it doesn't help fold the laundry. As far as the boundaries are concerned, I think the boundaries are go hand in hand with communication. The work is always going to be there. We're never going to get ahead of the work. And I think that's another acceptance of limitation that goes along with our need to communicate the boundary so that we can help change the dynamic within the relationship or the system. When I think about boundaries in therapy and between therapist and client, I think it gets really muddy for us. Like, as you said, if a client says, I'm only available at 8 p.m. and we don't usually work at 8 p.m. And so then are we doing gymnastics to try to accommodate it or we're not going to watch our favorite TV show that day or whatever it is, you know, in sacrifice. And um, I remember a quote that I can't attribute appropriately. So I apologize to the person who said or wrote this, (laughs) um, which was uh, resentment is a sign that our boundaries have been crossed. And... Mm when we start to feel that clinically, it's such an interesting microcosm, macrocosm phenomenon that when we set boundaries with a client, we're actually modeling for them how to set boundaries themselves. And yet it can sometimes feel um, the narrative that we tell ourselves as therapists can feel negative, self-centered, insert judgmental language here. (laughs) Sure. sure. Um, And I think one of the things that's coming up for me as you're talking about it, as someone who has spent a great deal of time, not only studying this and, and understanding this phenomenon, but you as a human, as a therapist, also reflecting on your own experience of it, were you to have a prescription pad for a compassion fatigued therapist, what would you prescribe? Hmm. It's a great question. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is a box of Oreos. Um, but uh, <laughs> I know you're not supposed to reward with food, but whatever, you can judge me. Um, I would say, honestly, it, one is in using intentionality, smart goals, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. I think those are excellent for us in our personal lives because we always, you know, in terms of CBT, we preach it to our clients all the time. I think sometimes, um, and I'll do that with my wife, like we'll talk about things and say, what do we have coming up? How are we going to effectively get through this? Right. Um, and you can't plan for everything, but you do your best to manage 
uh, at least some of the outcome if possible, or just be better at communicating about it so that you can get through it better together. Um, I think connection, as long as we're talking about that, connection is also important. Um, connection to self, connection to others, uh, anxiety management, self-soothing, utilizing different techniques, whether it's in the moment. Um, again, self-care, setting those boundaries. Um, you know, for therapists, I would say peer supervision and peer support, because I know those have been immeasurable to me. Um, bouncing ideas off of other people. Something I do, you know, with therapy is that I teach because it helps inform my teaching. And then when I read papers and get insight from people who don't know as much, like it informs my therapy because it brings me back to the basics. And sometimes for me, it's keeping things simpler. When we find that we're out of control, or I find, I'm going to speak for myself, but when I find that I'm out of control, I try to look and see why it's out of control or what I'm, where the anxiety or what's contributing to the anxiety. And a lot of times it's because I find that I haven't set boundaries. I've done things that are outside my boundaries, such as seeing a client at a different time to meet their need when it doesn't necessarily meet mine. Saying yes when I really need to say no because I'm exhausted. Um, you know, I had a student one time who wanted a, a referral from me. Uh, but this was a person who didn't come to class and she had a great deal of problem, you know, many problems, which I, I respected and I understood. Um, but the effort wasn't there. And I thought she, she wanted me to write a recommendation. And I thought I kept thinking about why I was so flustered by the idea mm. of it. And I realized that it was going to take me more time and energy to write something nice about somebody that I didn't for the first time ever. And the only recommendation letter I, I never wrote for somebody and I've written probably over 80 or hundred, um, but for the first time, I didn't do it. And at first, I felt guilty, just like we do. And within about 12 seconds, an amazing emotional and physical warmth fell over me because I felt so much relief about not having to go through that struggle to make something up about some, you know, about words I didn't feel right about writing. Mm. And I, but because I set that boundary and I said, I said, I wrote her an email. I said, you know, respectfully, I have so many things going on that I, I really don't have the time. Um, but I can give you referrals to other professors who might dot, 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 you know. But I remember it was one of the first times where I actually felt a, a, a physical relief from having set a boundary that felt appropriate and, and necessary. Uh, and that's really what it's about. It's, it's so many times we don't set a boundary because we worry about the repercussion. And we get into that future thinking about and the anxiety of future of, of repercussions that we often choose not to set that boundary because of the difficulty that comes with setting it, the discomfort. And what I've found that with compassion fatigue, it, a lot of times, yes, it's our own unres unresolved trauma, but it's really about respecting ourselves enough and our relationships enough that knowing that it might be difficult at first for the other person, for ourselves, but in the end, those who, who respect us enough and love us enough will respect the boundary and it, it enhances the relationship. It doesn't do the opposite of what we think it would, you know, doesn't diminish it in some way. It enhances the relationship. I believe that most of the time, I mean, for the most part, because I realize I'm speaking in generalities, but. As you were speaking, a couple of things occurred to me in my interview with Jill Johnson Young about her grief work. She talked mm. about how she will hold a cup of cold or ice water when hearing someone's grief story and 
she's listening to the story and simultaneously grounding herself through this ice water and this idea of kind of these moment to moment decisions to ground and, and be aware of herself in the room as Mm -hmm. Jill, not just as therapist. And the idea of finding space to set boundaries, I think for many of us can be very scary because of a pervasive culture of scarcity. If I Mm. do this now, then I won't have enough of XYZ down the road. And it's been an interesting experience for me. And I remember talking about this in an interview not too long ago. I do feedback informed treatment. That's my jam. And I did my typical end of session, session rating scale with a client. And thank goodness that the groundwork was there and the client shared that we like missed that you know, there was like, Mm. there was that space in between us that didn't jive and didn't land. And how the client had interpreted it was that, you know, I I was judgmental, or I wasn't present, or I can't remember exactly what the interpretation is. But nonetheless, the effect was still that I conveyed a lack of empathy, you know, like that was just the bottom line. And that there was a space between us that as I see it, what we do in relationship with anyone is, are we closer together? Are we the same? Or are we further apart at the end of that? And at the end of that moment, the client and I were further apart. And so thank goodness the client had the uh, courage to tell me that. And we talked about it. And wouldn't you know it that that night before I had gotten very, very little sleep and, you know, was rushing out the door and there was an emergency that happened in my home. And here I am bringing this into session, projecting my stuff that's affecting that space between us. And it was such an interesting lesson for me. And I'm curious for you, like when we are burned out, when we are compassion fatigued, do we tell clients that? Like, it, So for me, it was like this really interesting experience mm-hmm. where it was like, that was really cute, Beth. You thought that you were going to pull a fast one on your clients and they were mm. not going to know that you didn't sleep well last night and that you're exhausted. Um, cute. Oh. <laughs> and gotcha. And I got to do the repair with a client and saying like, oh, hey, here was actually what happened. And I, and I apologize. I'm sorry. Um, I reflected mm. back on that. It's like, should I have front loaded? And said to the client, hey, just FYI, I'm, I am so happy to be with you today. And I got very little sleep last night. I, okay, I love that you brought this up because I, I'm, I always say that nobody will ever accuse me of not being real. Um, I am who I am. And I do bring humor into complex trauma situations, simple trauma, depression, anxiety, all that, because it's who I am. Now, could it be part of my defense mechanism? Is it because I grew up Jewish and it's my birthright to use humor and everything? I don't know. I think for my clients, they will ask me, you know, they always want to know how you're doing, right? They always want to be invested somehow in the relationship, I think, to a degree. And there are times, depending on the relationship, where I will tell them, oh, you know, I'm putting the house together. I wish my handyman would finish the job, you know, and I might be honest with them because it, it lessens the tension of the rope that I feel we're both holding in the relationship. It allows for a a relative closeness and you get to decide what's appropriate and what to disclose, but obviously, but um, I think I do, you know, when you're in grad school, they say, disclose what's clinically appropriate. 
And I, I agree with that, of course. But I think what we're learning about relationships with the client is that you, you can go beyond maybe what's not entirely clinically appropriate, even if it's one sentence. Um, that somebody should know that I recently moved and, and moving is a stressor. Um, hey, I'm sorry. I just want to let you know, you know, don't be afraid to, to call me out today if you don't think I'm, I'm paying attention yeah. to something or if there's something that you really want to identify better, let me know and emphasize it for me so that I can perk up. There has to be a humanness. For somebody who sees, you know, if you're seeing anywhere between 15 to 40 clients a week, somebody can handle 15. We all have different capacities for tension, for anxiety, for whatever we do. And if, if 15 is your max or 40 is your max or whatever, however unethical that might seem, you know, um, but if you're, we all have a different gas tank. Um, some people are the size of a Yugo. Other people are, you know, full on tankers that pull into Costco yeah. gasoline and, you know, it just depends. But I, I do, I do believe that there is, at least for me, it has benefited my therapeutic relationships and alliances to divulge a little bit about who I am and what I'm experiencing in that day or in that moment, because it helps the client feel like they're also not alone. Yeah. Th that idea when you first see your parents as a person rather than a parent, that realization, there's, there's something that opens up in that world and, and, and maybe deepens the relationship or, or surprises you or intrigues you about the relationship. But maybe there's a greater investment in the relationship because you're allowed to be real with them and you're allowed to open up where they can feel like they can be more vulnerable because yeah. you've shared just a small part of who you are. But that's how I operate. Um, I try to make sure that it's as clinically appropriate as possible. I don't give them entire details about, you know, you know what I said to the handyman or what I, you know, I don't. But you just you give them a little a little part of your day. Somebody cut me off. Uh, you know, uh, rutabaga wasn't on sale. It was last week, but you know what I mean, like whatever it was. So, yeah, it's the idea of what is clinically appropriate that in and of itself is a huge conversation that oh, many, sure. many people could weigh in on. And it's been interesting too, for me to sit back and, and watch the field, even in the last decade of uh, just this major shift from therapist as expert to therapist as human. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and in retrospect with that client, it I appreciated being called out <laughs> and yeah. it was a real learning lesson for me of like, aren't you cute? <laughs> like, thinking yeah. that no one would notice. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I agree with you where it's like everybody, every clinician has to decide what's appropriate for them. And, and of course there's a big difference between a quick little sidebar conversation of this is what's going on in my world. And mm. you client come soothe me, you know, let me tell you this story and let's spend 15 minutes sure. about it. Those are totally different things. Um, 100%. but I think there's a authenticity in that, that is absolutely potentially clinically relevant, clinically important. Um, yeah. so my question for you, when we have the blinders on of compassion fatigue, chances are we may not be seeing ourselves clearly. We may not have, I mean, by nature of the beast, we may not have the same checks and balances within ourselves, the same awareness to catch ourselves. So what are the signs that we need to be looking for? Okay. So some of the, some of the warning signs, um, you know, 
the symptoms can be mood swings. It could be restlessness, irritability, uh, oversensitivity. Um, sometimes it's doing things that are that feel excessive, where it's either substances or shopping online, uh, or if you find yourself. Um, I mean, my wife can't leave me alone after 1 a.m. because uh, if it's on TV and it's got a space age polymer or a lifetime guarantee, uh, I've likely purchased two of them already. So I've been on restriction at times. But, um, you know, sometimes it's knowing that something's outside of your, your for lack of a better word, normal behavior. Um, sometimes there's more anger and resentment, uh, loss of objectivity, memory issues. A lot of times with compassion fatigue, it'll take us twice as long to do the same amount of work, you know, where you're reading the same paragraph two or three times. Um, you know, physically, it may, it could be somatic, it can be digestive issues, it could be um, muscle tension, uh, sleep issues, fatigue, uh, sometimes heart problems, headaches, sometimes people will get those more often. So those are some of the some of the symptoms. Uh, as far as, you know, the as far as the warning signs, um, I mean, they're pretty much the same vein. Uh, but sometimes we feel, we could feel powerless. Um, we can feel shut down or numb, helpless. Um, like I said, hypersensitive. Uh, sometimes we can feel more rigid or maybe there can be a decrease in, in self-esteem or efficacy. You know, that imposter syndrome kind of becomes a little bit more inflated. Um, a lot of times there's denial about problems. I'm fine. I'm, you know, how are you doing? I'm, you know, I'm, oh, I'm good. I'm just tired. You know, and we, instead of really acknowledging, um, some, something that can be laid out more specifically because we're afraid to lay it out specifically. I think sometimes because if we do, then we're acknowledging there's an issue. Yeah. The thing. Uh, right. Uh, sometimes there's also an intense self-criticism that comes with that. Um, again, that, that, that lends itself to the idea of lower self-efficacy yeah. or, or esteem. I should yeah, be absolutely. able to do this. The, the, the self-esteem killers, absolutely. The should, should it go to what is. Um, so those are some of the warning signs. Um, behaviorally, you know, you, you could become socially withdrawn or needy. Um, depending on the extreme, we could be impatient. Um, you know, maybe sometimes we, we can become more accident prone because we're not as focused. Um, or spiritually, we just feel like there's a loss of purpose. I mean, how many times have you, you know, questioned yourself in this field because you encountered something that was difficult or that you didn't know? Or, I mean, maybe less so now because we're more seasoned, but I know, especially for beginning therapists, this is an issue. Um, questioning ourselves. Uh, sometimes it's dissatisfaction, weariness, lack of faith or trust in the process of things. Uh, general intolerance. So those are all, those are all warning signs for, for caregivers. Thank you. I appreciate you breaking that down. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm curious, has the research looked at what percentage of clinicians of therapists experience compassion fatigue at some point during their careers? Burnout has been shown to affect early career mental health professionals at moderate to high rates of greater than 52%. In studies, uh, this was this was 2014 uh, Volpe at all, um, but so I would put it at right around. If I was to guess, at any given time, it's at least 50 percent um, that people can experience compassion fatigue or burnout. I think that number is really important to hear. 
So you were at a yeah. higher probability of experiencing compassion fatigue and or burnout than you are not. And Technically, yes. something about that, yeah. I think there's that element. Especially for young therapists. There's that element of normalization, at least mm. for me. I don't know if I know a clinician that isn't somehow burnt out right now. I mean, I, I agree. And part of, the, part of the issue too is that research really, well, at least in the last, from what I understand, at least in the last five to 10 years, research doesn't really exist on coping strategies in what they called quote unquote seasoned professionals. Um, but when I started doing this research, I had a difficult time because there was really no research um, that had been found studying the pre-licensed and newly licensed professional. So one of the one of my arguments in my dissertation was that it's it needs to become an ethical standard for us that to a degree that and I know this is going to sound funny but we need to take many vacations yeah. or that we have an ethical responsibility to be as present as possible. Granted, we have our own lives. I mean, I don't know of any therapist who hasn't thought about a grocery list, uh, you know, one time or another when they're dealing with say somebody who's more content rich or you know um, not so process oriented. Um, you know, and they're just kind of listing their content. Um, and you're like, or, and it's four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I don't know that anybody's truly effective at that time, but are you giving yourself enough time between those sessions? Are you doing something effectively? I, I appreciate that concept of a mandate. And I want to share a quick little anecdote in mm -hmm. what I call a past life. Um, I worked as a surgical coordinator and the, doctor I worked for did extremely detailed surgeries every Wednesday. Mm. And every Wednesday, he wouldn't have coffee. And he had this whole procedure um, on Tuesday nights and Wednesday mornings about what he was going to do leading into surgery. Mm. And it was a good example for me to watch this MD take responsibility for the accuracy and appropriateness of what he was doing medically, because he knew wow. that if his hand, sh hand shook because he had caffeine, that it could have serious consequences for that surgical patient. And wow. I think it's easy for us as mental health professionals, myself included, to forget that sense of responsibility and whether we actually have taken it or not, but this concept of a Hippocratic oath and that part of our self-care, we part of our, not even self-care, part of our um, professional responsibility is this awareness. Um, and simultaneously, all the more burdens of when you're burnt out, where it's like one more <laughs> thing I have to do. Um, right, right. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I do appreciate what you're saying there, where it just needs to be this foundational thing. And if we're already there, then what are we going to do to recover, to catch ourselves, mm. to seek connection, to seek um, the four which you named. So mindfulness, humor, forgiveness, gratitude, how do we access those so we can pull ourselves out of a place of inefficiency back into presence and efficiency, just as that surgeon did? Mm. I, I love, I love that. I mean, the answer is do, do a workshop, do, do training. Um, because when, because like I'll do workshops or I'll do trainings, but a lot of times we'll do experiential things. Um, and you can do it via Zoom, you can do it in person, but like uh, a forgiveness exercise, a gratitude exercise, um, learning how to be more mindful. You know, I, I was, I didn't know a lot about mindfulness before I started my research. And I was the guy that either fell asleep 
or I got headaches because I was trying too hard <laughs> until one person um, had said in a training, she said, just go ahead and allow yourself permission to let all those other thoughts come in. And I thought, oh my God, what a concept. I allowed myself permission for those thoughts to come in and just sit there, not pay them enough mind or attention. And then my headaches went away. I wasn't falling asleep. I was in that you know, unconscious or subconscious state. Um, and I actually started to understand what mindfulness was more about. I didn't have to be perfect at it. The, the misconception about this is that compassion fatigue happens to us and you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to seek perfection. The idea is, is that if every once in a while you're not eating lunch at your desk or every once in a while you go on a hike or every once in a while you plan a, a, a three-day weekend vacation if possible or you get a babysitter one night over each month because everybody can do that, then plan something that you really want to do or make a list of things that five things that you want to do in yeah. the next nine months that are realistic and time bound and, you know, um, you know, and attainable. And I think those things help reduce our sense of obligation, this perceived sense of obligation, if not a real sense of obligation. But a lot of times we really put ourselves, we put our own selves to the fire, just like any client is their own worst critic. We're the same. So I always want to encourage people to do something that they've been wanting to do, but to just plan for it accordingly or break it down, deconstruct yeah. whatever your dream is, you know, or whatever it is you want to do, deconstruct it and see if you can do it in different ways. You know, the other, I just recently moved to Texas. My wife said to me the other day, cause we were busy putting the house together and we were just exhausted. She said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go see some steer. I literally just wanted to see animals. And so we, we drove to Fort Worth and went to the stockyards and went to go see steer. Um, because I am a child and fascinated with <laughs> farm animals. So, but it was something that I needed and it was something that we could do in within two to three hours. Oh, specific, measurable, and attainable, realistic, and time bound. Yes. Can you imagine? <laughs> so speaking of time bound, um, yeah. we are out of time for our conversation today. I know that this has been very eye opening and impactful for me. Uh, Dane, for our listeners, will you please share how folks can uh, learn more about you and your work and also any resources that you recommend sure. for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can check out my website. Um, it's danecloner.com, D-A-I-N-K-L-O-N-E-R.com. Um, I really love the website, by the way. I want to throw that out there. Uh, my friend Mike at PixNinja did it, so I'm very proud. <laughs> um, and uh, you can also call. Uh, if anybody does need help, 213-479-8730. And then I also want to recommend um, that people check out the Compassion Fatigue Awareness Project online. I think it's CompassionFatigueAwarenessProject.org. Also the ProQOL, ProQOL-5, I believe. You can just type it into Google. um, And it is a Compassion Fatigue Self-Awareness Test. Um, and acknowledges how or how you're doing with self-care. It's a great resource. Something just to, even just to get a baseline, say maybe I need to work on this a little bit better. I need to take more time for myself. Um, but it just kind of lets you know where you're at. And it's not meant to be an end-all be-all. It's just just a, an interesting thing to help you kind of gauge where you need to work or what you might want to improve on. Um, and that's something I'd probably do once every six months just to, because we all, we all get off track. So that's what I recommend. 
But this has been great. So again, that was the Pro QOL5 self-awareness test. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Um, so again, for our listeners, this was Dr. Dane Cloner joining us on this conversation about compassion fatigue with a little bump out into burnout. Um, thank you, Dane. It's always wonderful to talk with you, but particularly Likewise. meaningful today. So thank you for sharing your experience and your research and your soul with our listeners. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've, it, I'm really passionate about it. So anytime I get to uh, talk about it and it's not uh, a bar full of drunken sailors, it's, uh, it's good. It's good for me to be able to talk about it. It's important. It's important, especially for our profession. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.